There was a study conducted about 20 years ago published by the American Psychological Association by two psychologists, Drs. Emmons and Mikawa, entitled Counting Blessings Versus Burdens, an experimental investigation of gratitude and subjective well-being in the daily life. Obviously an academic paper. In the study, there were three groups of people who were tasks, tasked rather, for ten weeks with recording a few sentences each week in a notebook. One group was asked to write about things that they were grateful for and that occurred during the week. The second group about daily irritations and things that displeased them. The third wrote about events and how they'd affected them with not an emphasis on either the good or the bad, just what happened. Well, after ten weeks, those who wrote about being grateful were more optimistic and felt better about their lives. Surprisingly, they had also exercised more and had fewer visit visits to the physician than those who had written down their sources of aggravation. I ran across that study this week while I was writing on my St. Anselm blog, the blog of Common Prayer on thankfulness. Just a little plug for my blog there. As I read the lectionary reading assigned for this Sunday, I saw a theme, and perhaps you did too, as you read or heard it read to you today. There's a thread of thanksgiving and gratitude running through the texts. A thread of thankfulness. And also a thread that gratitude makes one's soul or heart healthy, as well as their body. Here are a couple of more observations. Number one, gratitude yields faithfulness. Gratitude yields faithfulness. Number two, that a thankful heart yields a worshipful person, which is a little bit different. A, faith, a thankful heart yields a worshipful person. Person. And number three, an ungrateful heart stops, or at the very least greatly hinders, the following and worshiping of God. An ungrateful heart stops, or at least greatly hinders, the following and worshiping of God. Look with me at the first reading from the book of Ruth. In your scripture insert, or you can open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And as the book opens, we're told that a man by the name of Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Chilon, left for the country of Moab, Moab because there was a famine. The sons marry native Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. Tragically, in the ten years that ensue, both Naomi's husband and her two sons die, leaving the three women alone as widows, without protector, income, or social standing. In verse 8, Naomi urges Orpah and Ruth to return home to their father's house. Naomi is looking at the situation from a very practical side when she urges this, certainly a side of love for her daughters-in-law, but she's missing one key factor, God. Orpah and Ruth are widows of Hebrew men in this passage, remember, who worshipped the Lord, the one true God, Yahweh. 
As several commentators point out, to return to their father's household, Orpah and Ruth would have to leave and abandon the Lord God, the one true God, and revert to pagan worship. Orpah and Ruth make dramatically different choices, don't they? Look at Ruth chapter 1, focusing particularly on verses 14 through 17. So it's in your insert on page 2, verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Many people see this passage rightfully as an act of deep love and loyalty between Ruth and her mother-in-law. Ruth is choosing to sacrifice a great deal, a potential new husband, prosperity, a new start, in order to remain with Naomi. As commentator William McCain puts it, Ruth thus emerges already as a heroine who deliberately chooses the bleak prospect of life with a broken and embittered woman in a community which in every respect will be strange to her. She chooses the way of insecurity and hardship and declares that her own destiny is inseparably linked to the surviving mem member of the family of Elimelech, speaking about Ruth and Naomi. And even more remarkable is that the word that Scripture uses to describe Ruth's attachment to Naomi, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, but it's the Hebrew word dabak, which is um, translated in this passage, in this uh, translation, um, let me see here, clung, clung to her. Now, this Hebrew word is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2.24, where God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. The Hebrew word is dabak. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 24, verse 20 rather, we read, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him and Dabak, hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So this is not just a simple clinging, do you understand? This is a deep covenantal love and choice and faith to hold fast. And what drives such loyalty in Ruth? What drives such loyalty in any faithful person? The answer is gratitude to God. Ruth had lived with these Hebrews for years and worshipped the Lord, Yahweh, for years. And she had seen who he was. 
she was grateful not just to Naomi, but to her God. How do we know this? Because Naomi has very little to offer Ruth other than her friendship. Chaplain of Corpus Christi College, David Atkinson, well makes the point that whenever Naomi had done in modeling God and worshiping him, had formed Ruth. Naomi had been a witness to Ruth. And Ruth had responded to that with hope and trust in God's goodness, with faithfulness to him in the care of her future. And that had brought about a centered commitment to Naomi, her fellow follower of God. Her experience of the Lord was gratitude to him for what he'd done in the past for her. And even though Naomi here is at a low point, Ruth sees who God is. She will not abandon Naomi, nor the God that she's been introduced for, because of her thankfulness and gratitude. A gratitude for having been led out of pagan Moabite worship to the worship of the one true God. In the short gospel passage today, according to St. Luke, we see another example of gratitude bringing about covenant faithfulness and joy. The Lord Jesus is traveling between the region of Samaria and Samaritans, by the way, if you don't know, are those who had intermarried after the exile with the pagans, and so they were considered foreigners and even second level by the Jews. And Jesus is traveling by that in Galilee. And as he's about to enter a town, ten lepers approached Jesus, and that itself is a bold move. For lepers, you recall, were those who had to live outside communities in isolation so as not to contaminate others because they had no cure. Look with me at the gospel passage on the back of your scripture insert or in Luke chapter 17. And look particularly at verse 13. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They're searching for anything that can help them. They're desperate for a healer. And they know that he has healed. And there's a lot that could be explained about why he tells them to go see the priests. But for this morning's sermon, suffice it to say that it's in accordance with the Old Testament law. And on the way to obeying what Jesus tells them to do, they are cleansed and healed. Look at the second half of verse 14 through verse 16. And they went as they went. They were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Only the Samaritan the foreigner comes back in gratitude and worships Jesus. And he worships Jesus falling down at his feet, which is, of course, the technical definition for the verb worship, to bow down. And Jesus reflects that only one out of ten came back to return and give praise to God. And he, a Samaritan of all people, but Jesus marvels at his faith. The Samaritan's gratitude, you see, has built in him 
and yielded a faithfulness and a thankful heart and a person who's able to encounter God and respond with worship. In both of these passages from Ruth and Luke, there are two groups of people who encounter God. One group responds with gratitude, and the other does not. The grateful are even more richly blessed than the initial blessing, right? The door to persevering faith, friends, is worship and gratitude. This seems simple, but it's a metaphysical rule, a rule of the spiritual universe, which is true in all times and places. That if you want to be a faithful person, if you want to be a worshipful person, if you want to be a pious person, a godly person, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, the beginning is gratitude and thanksgiving. It's all over the scriptures, if we have eyes to see it. I'll just read a couple for you from the Old Testament. These are from the Psalms. They're probably familiar to you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, as I started the sermon with. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Even before the gods, I will sing praises of you. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. It is the same for the Old Testament Hebrew and for the New Testament Christian. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we have received a king, since we are rather, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And St. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns of spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our own Anglican tradition, again, if we have eyes to see it and pay attention, we see this pattern in worship. We begin morning and evening prayer with contrition and repentance for our sins, but then we rise up to thank the Lord for his pardon and for who he has made us by his power and by his grace. Consider how we begin morning prayer every day in the daily office with Psalm 95, the Venite, or Psalm 100, the Jubilate, songs of thankfulness and praise, how we began today with that hymn of praise. If it didn't come across to you, I don't know what would in our opening hymn, let us adore him, right? How many times did we say that? How many times did we sing it? The Eucharist itself, the meeting at the table of the Lord, comes from the Greek word Eucharista, meaning thanksgiving. It's gratitude, friends. A response to God's grace, a response to our salvation that opens the way to faithfulness and worship. Why is gratitude and thankfulness at the heart of worship? Well, because as Christians, of all people, we should understand that God has what God has done for us. As a Christian, you and I should understand that God has given us not just every moment of life and every good thing that we have, 
but has given us salvation, an eternal life, something priceless, something beyond this world, as well as in it. While we worship God together out of gratitude and thanksgiving for what he's done for us, a grateful heart, however, is not automatic. And that's part of what the texts today are teaching us. That while we can be around gratitude, while we can be shaped by thanksgiving, a grateful heart does not come automatically or naturally. And my experience of myself, this is all too true, and perhaps you see it as well in your own heart, a grateful heart has to be cultivated. A grateful heart has to be fed. 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, The best of us are far too like the nine lepers. We are more ready to pray than to praise. And more disposed to ask God for what we have not than to thank him for what we have. He continues, Murmurings and complainings about abound on every side of us. These things ought not to be. But all those who know the church and the world must confess that they are true. The widespread thanklessness of Christians is the disgrace of our day. What he wrote in the middle of the 19th century, friends, is too often true today. For, as he continues, it's plain proof of our little humility. What the good bishop is getting at is that as Christians, by the grace of God, we must cultivate a grateful heart by training it and valuing gratitude and thanksgiving. The readings today ask you and me, how is your heart? Where are you in training it? Where is it in reference to gratitude and thanksgiving? It also asks us, how does your heart respond to your encounters with God? in the Bible, or the sacrament, or your neighbor? Are you becoming more like Ruth, or more like Orpah? Are you more like the Samaritan leper at Jesus' feet, falling down in adoration? Or are you like the other nine, walking away, having been given a great gift that hasn't touched your heart? Some practical questions we might examine ourselves with are these. In prayer... How often do you thank God versus asking him for things? What's the rough ratio? Does it feel weird to you to praise God, even around other Christians saying things like, praise God, or what an answer to prayer, or thanks be to God? Or does that seem awkward and unnatural to you? How often do you count your blessings and the gifts that God's given you as opposed to muttering for what you lack? Is your worship and the daily office prayers and the scriptures and reading them something that you long for? Something that you run to Jesus in? Or is it a burden? Is coming to church once a week, which I did the math, figures to 1.8% of your 168 our week. If, that's your, if you're in church for three hours on Sunday morning, it's 1.8% of 
of that 168-hour week, does that bring you joy? Or does it seem to you an unsurmountable task? Is your default to compliment and encourage other people, sending notes and texts of thanksgiving, recognizing what they've done for you? Or do you find yourself judging, being critical, or hiding it under the auspices of, quote, constructive criticism? Ultimately, a thankful and grateful heart loves God and loves to worship Him and loves to be together with His people. But a thankless heart is unhappy and critical and restless because it's self-focused and flat-out proud and arrogant. Most of us are deficient in this. Most of us are thankless more than thankful. But God desires to help us in this even too. Dear Christians, as we read from Timothy, where we are faithless, he is faithful. Thank God. But that doesn't give us an excuse not to cultivate a grateful heart. What our prayer book calls our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, and above all, his immeasurable love and redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ for the means of grace and the hope of glory is the greatest gift that God has given us. We see the reason and the necessity for a grateful heart in our prayer book and in the scriptures. We recite it weekly in our liturgy, daily in the daily office. And now the question is, do you choose it? It's all around you and me. Do you choose to have a grateful heart and to cultivate thanksgiving in it? I hope so. I've found this convicting myself and have tried to take some small steps which I want to share with you and invite you along with me on. How do we become more grateful people daily? Well, the first step is simple. Desire to have a grateful heart. Hopefully this sermon has made the case to you the importance of that. Desire to have a grateful heart. The second step, ask God for a grateful heart. Ask God for a grateful heart. We have not often because we ask not. Ask him to open your eyes to his blessings which surround you in your life. Step number three is not much harder than the first two. Once you have had your eyes opened and you see those blessings in your life, delight in them. I mean, that seems simple, right? But just take a minute and delight in what the Lord's given you. Say, thank you, God. It can be that simple. Thank you, Lord, that you've given me this beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, that I have heat in my house and a place to live as the weather turns cold. Thank you, Lord, that I can gather together with my family. Thank you, Lord, for my health today. And step number four, let that delight turn into an act of gratitude. In a simple thank you to God, in prayer, in a sentence of joy in your journal, or however you keep a record of your prayers if you do that, in a gesture of thanksgiving to those around you, a thank you note maybe to someone in the church or to someone else. Show that gratitude with an act. Let thanklessness not be your disgrace. 
but thanklessness not be your disgrace. Don't let an entitled and ungrateful heart cause you to struggle in being faithful and worshipful to God. The psychological study stumbled on one of God's laws for all places and times. The thankfulness and gratitude is the door that opens to perseverant faith and happiness and eternal happiness. Most importantly, it's a happiness that produces joy in our worship and daily life with Jesus. And so friends, I invite you to that happiness. I invite you to embrace that joy by cultivating that heart of gratitude. Bless the Lord, O your soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Let us pray. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see all that you give so abundantly and teach us to be grateful for the things we hold closest to our heart, for the things that all share in common, for the smallest pleasures, and for the great hope of heaven. In all that you have given us, let us see your hand and let our delight in your gift become an unending prayer of thanksgiving and ever-growing habit of generosity towards others. For the sake of him who loves us and gave himself for us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.